Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, Today is August 21st, 2015. Uh, Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet today, we have Doug, Tiffany, and Erica. And Gabby can't be with us today, unfortunately, so we'll miss her company, but we will look forward to having her back next week. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about addiction, addiction and the dopamine hit. Um, So we're not going to just be looking at drug addiction specifically today, but all types of addiction, how your brain and body become addicted to various substances or behaviors, um, what are the differences and similarities between behavior and substance addictions, Um, you know, whether it's food, sugar, internet, Netflix, uh, your cell phone, buying stuff, um, so all sorts of different things. Um, So it should be a pretty interesting show. We'll touch on a, a number of different topics. Uh, we'd like to welcome everybody who's in our chat and also say that we um, we welcome calls uh, today. If anybody's listening live and wants to call in, the number is 718-508-9499. Um, and we'll post that in the chat in a little bit here as well um, to remind people what the number is. So uh, welcome. And uh, let's get started a little bit by some uh Connecting the dots from some items in the uh, the news from this week, um, Erica, did you want to start us off with that article that you had? Yeah. So there was a great article carried on. How talking to your body helps you heal. And basically, the article starts off with a great part your body has its own consciousness on its own of its own soul or its own soul um and basically there's a an extraordinary this and how it's necessary to train the brain to enter alpha and beta or theta brainwave states um when we're in these states um Communication between the conscious mind and the physical body is dramatically enhanced. And she found three steps to gaining this cooperation of the body. And the first one is to approach your body with a genuine compassion, understanding that it is made up of conscious cells who experience emotions. The second step is to build trust by engaging your body in mental conversations about your desire for the two of your you to cooperate and overcome ailments. And three is to allow changes in the conversation by using different thoughts and words that elicit spontaneous elevated emotions. And so basically using these three steps is necessary to achieve dynamic healing responses in the body. And she talks about a very similar set of factors that were discovered by a researcher named Cleve Baxter, who spent 36 years studying biocommunication in plants, animals, and human cells. He referred to these factors as real intent, attunement, and spontaneity. 
Baxter formerly was an interrogation specialist for the CIA, which I found a little interesting, kind of frightening. But he wrote about the defining moment which led him to his real work in this world. He wrote Check out this really fascinating stuff. And, you know, um, for those who are practicing a regular meditation practice, you can really use these three approaches to do some spontaneous healing, you know, focusing on centers in your body where you carry stress or tension and um, using your meditation practice to kind of send signals to those areas and release pain. I mean, we've all heard about that saying, uh, uh, somebody's a pain in the neck, you know, maybe uh, using this approach will help alleviate those kind of pains in the neck and um, give some relief, really. I found that it, it really does work since I've read this article. I've been, you know, kind of applying the, these three different steps and, you know, you can really do some self-healing. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, Erica, you got a, a little bit choppy there for a minute. Would you mind just doing the specific three steps again, just so we can hear? What yeah. So um, you, okay, you approach your body with genuine compassion, understanding that it's made up of conscious cells who experience emotions, right? So those feeling sensations in your body, you know, when you get tense, you clench your jaw or you shrug your shoulders. The second is to build trust by engaging your body in mental conversations about your desire for the two of you to cooperate, overcoming the ailment. And three, allow change conversation by using different thoughts and words that elicit spontaneous elevated emotions. Okay. Okay. Sounds like a reasonable approach. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of like... Homework for the week, and uh, we all try it and then report back next week on the conversations we had with the particular body parts. <laughs> I haven't decided which. Yeah, that's a good idea. I actually have been having a bit of uh, lower back pain lately, so maybe I'll just try engaging it in some in a dialogue a bit and see if I can maybe get along with it a little bit better. Yeah, instead of being antagonistic, like, oh, come on, what are you doing? Yeah, you know, I, I bet that is kind of uh, a good approach. Instead of kind of having this, you know, you know, every time you're, you you have a certain part that's bothering you or something like that, you kind of, there's a tendency to kind of like just get aggravated with it. Like, oh, come on, you know, I should be able to do this physical work, you know, and, and really get kind of upset that you're kind of limited in some way. When really, you know, it, it is kind of a... Um, uh, a communication between uh, your body and you. It's like, you know, p this pain is kind of telling you something. So rather than kind of just try to override it or, or get angry at it, maybe maybe it is a better approach to kind of like say, okay, you know, what's going on here? What's happening? Um, you know, there are like metaphorical connections between all these kinds of things too. Like, you know, if, like Erica mentioned, you know, a pain in the neck. You know, it's something, if you're having a pain in the neck, you know, there is, you know, what what's going on? It might be kind of an opportunity to kind of examine what's kind of happening in your life at that point and, and opening that kind of dialogue. 
Yeah, maybe it would be helpful yeah, if you gave the pain in your back a name. Like yeah. Bob? Like, Bob, <laughs> what's yeah. happening today? Can you talk to me? <laughs> there you go. Well, let's see um, what else we have uh, from the news here. I'm sure our listeners had heard about the uh, the giant blast in uh, Tianjin, China. And uh, I don't know if anybody saw the uh, the video of that, but it was insane. Um, I had heard about it on the on the news when it happened, and I was like, there's no way that it's that big, you know. And then seeing the video that somebody had shot who lived nearby, I mean, it was really, really incredible. Um, destroyed, you know, like 400 square meters or a 400-meter radius uh, around the, uh, the blast site. But um, in health-related news on that topic, there's an article on SOT here that they're carrying from RT uh, this week. This is Tianjin blast site contains cyanide levels more than 356 times the permitted level. Um, staggeringly high cyanide levels have been found at the Tianjin blast site, with one spot exceeding the permitted amount by 356 times. Um, people who are living there say that we can't live here. Um, cyanide mm -hmm. pollution is severe inside the warning zone. Outside the zone overall, the amount of cyanide detected is at normal range, which, again, just makes me wonder that... You know, like a symptom of our society when we have normal ranges of cyanide and cadmium, mm -hmm. uranium, stuff like that. Like, oh, it's normal, normal levels. It's <laughs> still, I mean, this is, this is a really um, a dangerous situation here. So we, yeah, uh, when I saw the pictures, it looked like a, a nuclear blast. Mm. Yeah, it, it was really nuts. Um, and I think they're still in, not entirely clear on what caused that. Yeah. They're saying uh, it had, there was explosive material in some of the uh, some of the containers or something like that, but there's a lot of doubts being expressed about that and what, whether, what, you know, what really happened there. Of course, the conspiracy corner is alive with uh, talk of um, American satellite weapons, you know, getting pissed off at China for lowering the value of the yen. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's it's curious. I wonder I wonder what's really going on there. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a so, connecting the dot. <laughs> sure. Kind of related to our main topic today. Uh, there's an article up on site on August the 14th. It was written by Josh Murr uh, from the Anti Media, and it's called FDA. Oxycontin as young as 11. Hmm. I guess the regulatory agency finally came to the tweener Oxycontin lobby inside mm -hmm. of a meeting outside the FDA finding effect. But really, uh, that didn't quite that way. I guess the FDA just thought it would be a good idea for the country to be But Oxycontin is an opiate painkiller, and it has effects that are some heroin. Shoot. Well, so if we're really having problems hearing you guys, I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off. Maybe we'll have to... 
I don't keep trying, have trying to, to, try to, to reconnect. Okay, we'll try it's and reconnect. Open. This sounds really bad. Yeah. Good. That's the uh, the wonders of the the internet, Skype, and, and Blog Talk Radio all combined together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Let's. Uh, I had one more here from the uh, from the news um, from this week that I wanted to share, um, and this is something that I've always kind of wondered about and, and talked to friends about. Uh, but uh, Teflon contamination of drinking water is much much more serious threat to health than previously thought. So people may uh, understand that it's generally not a good idea to cook with Teflon, um, but may not be aware that um, every time you drink a glass of water, um, there are uh, potentially unsafe amounts of Teflon in the water uh, itself. Um, In 2005, DuPont settled a class action lawsuit brought on behalf of 70,000 mid-Ohio Valley residents for decades of selling their drinking water with a highly toxic chemical once used to make Teflon. Hmm. As part of the part of the settlement, Dupont is paying for a technology to filter, but not necessarily eliminate the toxin from six area water systems. Um, so, uh, definitely, people in this area uh, in the Ohio Valley want to be careful and uh, check on their drinking water. This also comes on the heel of another article, which I don't have in front of me, but I had seen this week regarding um, levels of uranium in water in uh, California and in the Midwest. So um, generally, I think uh, people just want to stay away from drinking tap water altogether. It's kind of a uh, a chemical soup these days, depending on where you are, of course. Um, But I think in in general, um, want to find uh, well water if you can. You know, uh, if you can't, then you should get a good filter. and I'm not necessarily a proponent of giving all of your money to the companies that bottle water, but if you can find a good bottled water, um, that's also a better alternative than drinking tap water. Yeah, and, you know, never mind all the stuff that they're putting into the water, like uh, the fluoride and the chlorine and all those other kinds of things. It's like the actual the water supply itself seems to be contaminated. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty dire situation. Oh. The phones in our studio are going off the hooks. Do we sound any better now, Jonathan? Yes, we do. A lot better. We do? Yeah. I didn't do anything different. (laughs) Probably just reestablishing the connection. Okay. Yeah. Um, would you mind uh, going back over that article you had? You were talking about uh, OxyContin for children. Yeah, the FDA approved OxyContin for kids as young as 11. Um, so I was saying that OxyContin, uh, the abusers usually crush up the pills and they inhale it or, or inject it, and it's very similar in action to heroin. Um but in 2010, the, the producers of OxyContin, they came out with a crush-proof version, which some abusers found a way around, and then other people were just like, screw it, I'm just going to take heroin, or they jumped to other drugs. So I think this is the same 
drug that Rush Limbaugh was addicted to. Anyway, the article notes that in 2010, there were over 16,000 people who died from opiate overdoses. And there was a recent study that showed that four out of five new heroin addicts became addicted from using prescription opiates. So I looked a little bit deeper. Um, the FDA decided to approve OxyContin in this age group. They did a three-year trial, which, of course, it determined that OxyContin was safe for children. And uh, a little further searching showed that the FDA recommended it only for children who've suffered severe trauma, major spinal surgeries, or major surgeries to correct birth defects. And as a precaution, the FDA requires that doctors test the young patients on a minimum dose of 20 milligrams for at least five days to make sure they respond well. But then they say that it should only be used for a short time period. So I'm guessing that they're thinking of using it for more than five days. Um, but the original article po points out two things. It says that the FDA's evaluation methods, as we know, basically stink. And there's a clear conflict of interest between the health needs of American citizens and the profits of big pharma. So no mm -hmm. one really likes to think about children in pain, and maybe they won't turn into tweakers just from having OxyContin after surgery. But I think like with all drugs, it has the ability to snowball. They'll use it for a little bit at first maybe, and then they'll just use it more. And I didn't find a statement anywhere that said it would be prescribed and given only in an inpatient setting. So mm -hmm. it's not really unheard of, like if you're giving OxyContin to children in outpatient or in an outpatient setting, um, family members, you know, they've been known to steal, in quotes, children's meds like Ritalin that has a street value too, and they mm -hmm. sold them or use them. But I think it really drives home the fact that big pharma is the biggest drug pusher and the biggest drug peddler on the planet, along with the CIA, really. So it's a really bad idea all around, but the FDA is rife with bad ideas, so I'm not really surprised that this came out. Yeah. Yeah, OxyContin addiction is actually a really big thing. Like, there's there's a big kind of street market for OxyContin. Apparently, it's dubbed hillbilly heroin. That's the, yeah. the kind of one of the street names for it. And, yeah, there's there's a, a, a serious problem with people being addicted to this stuff and a lot of uh, kind of under-the-radar under kind of dealings with uh, with street selling of it. Uh -huh. Yeah, that was what struck me, too, is, Tiff, what you said about it being used, you know, in an inpatient versus an outpatient setting because, you know, there there is pain. Um, there's especially pain that results from certain types of surgeries that needs to be dealt with. And um, I can see, you know, I, you know, there there's extenuating circumstances for all sorts of different contexts. So if a child is in the hospital and they're in pain and they need some kind of pain relief under the supervision of a doctor in an inpatient setting, it doesn't seem that out of the realm of, of you know, being reasonable um, to me. But the idea that it's now approved for prescription and outpatient prescription just opens up this whole realm of things, yeah. you know, and yeah. increases the idea that it's more and more acceptable um, to give these drugs to young kids where now, you know, like it's, it's, <laughs> it's taboo to talk to your kids about, you know, marijuana or alcohol or anything like that. But, you know, you can give moxie. That would be fine. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it seems really crazy. 
I've read that the only FDA-approved drug up until this point for children was a fentanyl patch, which is really just like a patch that you put on your skin and it kind of infiltrates into the body. But uh, OxyContin, which is basically heroin for kids, just seems like a really, really, really bad idea. And the fact that there doesn't seem to have been like any big call it wasn't like there were parents demanding that they have oxycontin for their kids because it was the only thing that would help them after their surgery. I didn't hear anything about that, so it seems like the FDA just made this decision for whatever reason. I guess to pad the pockets of the pharmaceutical company, but it just seems like a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah. Well, that's just it. It's it's for profit, you know. I mean, yeah. even if every single situation is not to this motivation. These big pushes for um, legalizing and popularizing certain drugs put billions and billions of dollars into the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies and the people that own them. Um, mm-hmm. And there was just, I think, I don't know if it was in that article, Tiff, that you read, but there was a bit about the couple, this billionaire couple that owns the company that makes OxyContin, and just talking mm-hmm. about this obscene amount of money that they've made off of this drug. When it is now one of the one of the top um, you know inroads for people uh, to get addicted to heroin and uh, other you know harder drugs that are available on the street, wow. and I, I had the experience talking once to a um, a detective as well. I think I'd mentioned this before, but it was in a conversation with a police detective, and <clears throat> we were talking about. Uh, the topic of marijuana, and it was not in the setting that you might think. This is outside the jail, uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but he he said that uh, he personally didn't have a problem with it, and he thought that um, in in his own experience, what he had seen in his career of working as a as a detective, that prescription drugs were the number one problem uh, in uh, culture and society for addiction to harder things. Um, mm. And that the, the prescription drugs themselves are the harder things. You know, it's it's not yeah. even like it's not necessarily the fact that people that start on these drugs go to heroin. It's that they start on these drugs, get addicted to them, and continue to use them in greater and greater measure. And then you get resulting crime. Um, you know, uh, robberies of pharmacies, uh, violent crime between people that have the pills, um, stealing money to get the pills, things like that. Uh, it, it's really a mess. We also see that with other FDA-approved drugs for children, in particular uh, medication for ADHD and ADD. You know, at first it was Ritalin, which is basically a legalized speed, and now it's Adderall. And um, some personal experience um, with teenagers, you know, one of the things that's become popular is chopping up Adderall and snorting it. And kids get really high because uh, essentially it's a legal form of crystal methamphetamine. And so, you know, this is kind of more of that scary, you know, like you were saying, Jonathan, you know, things like marijuana and alcohol seem to be on the lower scale of concern for parents now. It's these prescription drugs. And, you know, I wouldn't have believed that kids would actually chop these things up and snort it had I not been told firsthand experience of how they do it, you know, and it's, you know, as a parent, you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, and it's so easily readily available. I mean, 
you know, how many people now are taking these um, Adderall in particular for attention deficit disorder issues. And, you know, I've talked with a few friends that are on it and they say, well, you know, it really helps calm me down. And, and I laugh and say, well, just drink a cup of coffee because it's got caffeine <laughs> and it kind of does the same thing, you know, but um, it's really frightening. And there seems to be no sort of task force associated with dealing with, with that issue, you know, like the Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah exactly. there's no just say no campaign to Oxycontin or any of the other legally prescribed drugs. You'll never see that. No. No, no. That cut into the profits. Yeah. I mean, the, the war on drugs is such a ridiculous, you know, and this kind of ties in with our topic um, today, but it's it's such a ridiculous farce, um, the idea yeah. that there is even a war on drugs. I mean, if there if there were you know, uh, a quote-unquote war on drug addiction, that might be a different story. Um, but the idea that there is any kind of war on drugs or legitimate war on addiction in society is, is ridiculous. Our society mm-hmm. runs off of addiction. And the people at the top, a lot of the people at the top, um, have their fortunes because of addiction and because the things are so readily available. Yeah, I call it a war of drugs. Or they're using mm-hmm. drugs to actually wage war against the populace. But Gabar Mate, he says that uh, he calls it the war against drug addicts because mm-hmm. of all of the the hardships that drug addicts face in the society, being jailed or punished or anything that they have to go through just because of their addiction. So I guess it yeah. can be seen in two different ways. And it is pretty ludicrous that, you know, if you're addicted to one thing that's considered a street drug, you get thrown in jail for it. If you're addicted to something that's a prescription medication, eh, you know, no punishment for that. It it just seems like such a ridiculous double standard. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, like you said, if you get caught by a police officer and you have a drug in your purse or in your pocket, that's essentially harder than a lot of other drugs that are available, but you have a prescription for it, there's no problem. Go on your way, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm not advocating, you know, necessarily the regulation by police of these things, but the double standard is pretty stark. Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of gets into the whole topic of, like, you know, should these addicts really be punished, you know, regardless of what it is they're, they're, they're addicted to? You know, the the fact that there is that double standard just kind of makes it so glaring that, you know, the problem goes beyond which substance um, the, these people are addicted to. You really need to kind of get to the, the the cause of the addiction and what is actually going on there and kind of try and solve the problem that way. Like punishing people by throwing them in jail really is not a solution. Not at all. So, I mean, obviously we need, no, to, we need to kind of take a better look at this. Well, and it's been stated several times that prison is basically just college for criminals, you know. So it's yeah. not like you're going to deal with the addiction problem in prisons. I mean, there's rampant drugs easily accessible in prisons, from what I've heard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it it's just like a downward spiral, really, you know. That's why Gabar Mate's work is um, so great and helpful, Um there was an article on SOT called uh, a, top, a Top Doctor Explains Why Kind Love 
beats tough love when treating addiction. And um, it's basically an interview with Gabor Mate on his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he has, um, was carried in Time Magazine, so a pretty mainstream media outlet. And he basically defines addiction as any behavior that's associated with craving and temporary relief and with long-term negative consequences that a person is not able to give up. Um, note that he says nothing about substances, and, and um, it's any behavior that has temporary relief and negative consequences of loss of control. When you look at the process or behavior, whether it's sex, gambling, shopping, work, substances, they engage the same brain circuitry and the same reward system, the same psychological dynamic and the same spiritual emptiness. People go from one to the other. So he really talks a lot about how, you know, the drug is just kind of a coping mechanism. And in his book, he, he gives really clear cut, um, honest, descriptions of addicts when they share why they're doing especially hard drugs like heroin and crystal meth or cocaine is you know one addict said it's like a a nice warm secure blanket that they feel that they can reconnect with the world when they're on this drug so there's something definitely deeper going on and as we said in the beginning of the show, it could be anything. It's drugs are just the one that seems to get a lot of attention because of this whole war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think Gabor Mate worked for like 12 years on the downtown east side of Vancouver, and he said that mm. of all the women patients that he worked with, there was not one of them who didn't have sexual abuse in their childhood. And the men that he worked with, they were traumatized equally, whether it be sexual abuse or physical abuse or some other kind of childhood trauma. So he says that childhood trauma is really at the root of all addiction. Um, there's not, I mean, there could be a genetic predisposition or it's not because the drugs themselves are so addictive because really they're working on your own brain chemicals. So you have to figure out what the stress that the person is and that causes them to seek out the drug habit in the first place because they're really just trying to soothe themselves or comfort themselves. And he says also that you don't have to have, like, some kind of really pronounced trauma like sexual abuse. I mean, there's also the trauma of things that should have happened but didn't happen, like uh, some neglectful situations or just your parents were too too stressed to give you the care and the emotional attention that you needed. So it doesn't have to be anything that we would consider horrific abuse for someone to mm-hmm. kind of seek out something to soothe themselves. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Uh, you know, you have to think about the, the kind of psyche of a child. And, you know, it, it, you know there, there's any number of different things that could be severely traumatic to a child that we might not look at as being all that big a deal. You know, a mother kind of losing her child in a shopping center or something like that could be profoundly traumatic to some, some child from their perspective. You know, they're completely cut off from their caregiver and they're, they're very worried, you know, in this, in this strange world not knowing what to do. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different traumatic experiences that can lead to this sort of thing. And they're not necessarily something overt, like you were just saying to. That makes me think too, as well of the, um, uh, the, the world of, 
religion and you know not just uh, necessarily Christianity but you know that that comes to uh, my mind first um, that's a, a world that I grew up in and I knew a lot of uh, uh, people uh, you know in the church uh, kids that were along you know my age that were growing up along with me um, and have seen a lot of addiction come out of that and I, I think uh, that that has something to do with the idea of uh, of hell and of this retribution that is um, kind mm-hmm. of laid in front of kids as they're growing up and saying, if you don't behave a certain way, not only are you going to be, you know, your parents going to be mad at you and your, your community is going to be mad at you. Um, you're going to suffer an eternal fire <laughs> forever when you die, you know, and it's, it's yeah. such a, such a concept for a child to wrap their brain around that that alone, I think is also a form of trauma. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, I, from a certain aspect, I, I want to be sensitive uh, to people's uh, beliefs um, and to the belief systems that they've adopted, you know, for themselves or their families. It's not something that I have my fingers in. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to uh, talk about what this does to, to kids' brains. <clears throat> so you don't necessarily have to be, you know, just born with fetal alcohol syndrome or to grow up in a, uh, you know, in a mess house or something like that in order to become a drug addict. It comes from all these different um, realms of things. And like we were talking about too, not just drug addiction, but addiction to, to anything, uh, any kind of behavior. That's something else that Gabo Mate says that um, in his opinion, behavior addiction is essentially the same as substance addiction because the behavior, the the reward of um, completing the addictive behavior uh, creates substances within the brain, and so that's what the addict is is going for is the, the hit of that substance, uh, mostly dopamine, um, yeah. which is something that we're going to talk about a little bit today. Yeah, we see that a lot in children too, just um, eating as a form of security, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're feeling alone or, and especially, especially with all the advertisement that's on television and even in movies and stuff, you see children looking towards food as a way to comfort themselves, whether they're home alone or, you know, they're feeling not intentionally neglected by their parents, but you know, that the parent is working, you know, eight to 10 hours a day and to kind of soothe themselves emotionally, they tend to turn towards sugar and sweets and high carbs to, again, like you were saying, Jonathan, get that hit in the brain that they're not getting from the physical attention or uh, emotional attention. Exactly. Uh, you know, there's not necessarily a way, and I think you know, I'm not a parent, so I don't mean to front um, that that I know more about this topic, but... I think that parents would agree uh, that there's not a perfect way, you know, to raise a child. I'm sure everybody struggles with that. And that's a a big um, concern for people who are parents is how can I raise my child to be safe, you know, to be secure, um, to have a good life, to be successful and, and uh, to be able to handle themselves in the world as they grow up. Um, But even though there's not a, a, a perfect way to do that, there are ways um, to, to raise children so that they have the attention, uh, the, uh, the contact, you know, the communication that they need uh, in order to reduce the uh, potential that they'll become addicts uh, as they grow up. And I think it's uh, uh, something that's kind of an epidemic in our society now uh, is this isolation. Um, 
we had talked in a previous show about the the book um, Alone Together, uh, which is just about isolation in our modern culture and how, you know, just one symptom is everybody walking around on their phones uh, instead of actually talking and communicating in real-world situations. Um, I think that's just one symptom that uh, of the isolation in our society that breeds this desire for connection. And it's one thing that um, Gabor Mate says about uh, the common kind of heroin user will say <clears throat> that when they got that first hit, it was like a warm hug. You know, it was like a, a hug from a loving parent or from a loving companion. And that's what they're looking for, essentially. It's not just to be high. It's a it's a feeling of acceptance. Yeah, I think that's true. There was actually a really good uh, article posted on SOT. Um, it was a while ago. Oh, actually, it wasn't that long ago. It was, about, uh, it was January 20th, 2015. It was called Addiction Rooted More in Social Isolation Than in Chemical Dependency. And I know Erica is going to cover this a, a bit more, but I just thought it was uh, very interesting because the author is basically talking about how um, these, these addictions very much are rooted in um, this social isolation um, rather than actually the, the actual chemical itself. So it's not so much that they're um, craving the the chemical, but they're craving what's kind of behind it. Um, and like you said, Jonathan, it's like you know people um, are taking these these drugs just you know as a comfort, as you know some some way of of uh, replacing what they're missing in a, in a social context. And I'll just you know I know like I said I know Erica's going to cover this, but I just wanted to cover one interesting thing in the article. They were talking about how um, in the Vietnam War, um, drug use among the uh, the soldiers was rampant, particularly heroin use, and there was a big concern that when the Vietnam War was over and you have all these U.S. soldiers returning, um, suddenly there was going to be this epidemic of um, heroin abuse. Um, but what they found is that that didn't really happen. That once these uh, soldiers were back in their their normal context and had the social connection that they were missing um, while they were at war. Uh, they didn't turn to the heroin anymore. There just there wasn't a need for it because they they kind of reconnected to society, reconnected to their families, their friends, all those sorts of things. So a really really interesting illustration of that that concept. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah sure. I'll go into that, you know, a little bit more about what uh, Doug talked about because um, when doing research for this show, I um, came up across a TED Talk discussion, um, and the the author of this article was the same man that gave the TED Talk, so it was a little connecting of, of the dots there for me in this research. But basically, the the uh, author of this article was Johan Edward Hari, and he's a British journalist, and he wrote a book, and it's uh, linked in the article that Doug just mentioned called Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. And uh, two points that he made in the article that really stuck out for me were um, he basically says addiction is an adaptation. It's not you. It's your cage. And and then the other is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. And so in this TED Talk, and if anyone's uh, interested in listening to it, it's um, it's titled Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong. And he talks about the current human experience and how it's not a natural one. It's, it, it's 
one that doesn't resonate with our soul and we've drifted far from an experience that can nourish us. What really needs to be nourished, you know, is our soul. Addiction is a great example of the problem, whether it's drugs, food, porn, video games. As a result of our environment, which is not healthy, we turn to harmful things to help us cope with what we don't feel good about in our lives. He goes on to say what we are doing, what are we doing on this planet? We go to school, we get a job. Most of us spend our entire lives working at something we're not even passionate about just in order to survive while neglecting what truly ignites our souls. And we see this again and again um, on SOT with articles coming out about, you know, there was one recently what screen addiction is doing to children, you know, like you'd mentioned this, this idea of being connected to your phone or connected to your iPad or your computer, spending hours and hours on Facebook looking for that connection with other people and then not quite meeting those needs, you know, searching for it, but not really getting it, so to speak. And and we, again, back to what I was saying early about children, you know, searching for, you know, food to, to meet those needs. We're also seeing, and in this article um, about screen addiction is children are, you know, handed the iPad or handed the cell phone or put on a video. I mean, I was definitely guilty of that as a parent. Like, I just need an hour to clean the house. I'm just going to pop in this Disney video. Yes, they've watched it a hundred times, but you know, putting a child in front of a TV and and basically letting the TV do the entertaining and and then they become addicted to it, you know. It's it's now all the time you need something to do for the child, you put on a video, you put on the iPad and the child becomes attached in a sense to that source of media. I mean, not saying that, you know, being on the computer is bad, but when it becomes this soothing for a child, then you start to see, again, this idea of addiction come up. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I think that, well, um, I was just going to say, I think that speaks to another point that, uh, that Mate, Gabor Mate makes um, regarding um, the difference between uh, passion and addiction and that passion is creative and addiction is destructive. You know, so mm-hmm. he may have, so people may say, well, okay, so playing, you know, an MMORPG or, you know, a, a multiplayer online video game, uh, if, if my child plays that for many, many hours, um, they are getting a connection with other people and they are talking to their friends on this game. So really, what's the big deal about that? Well, I think, you know, if you just look at whether or not it creates or destroys, you know, and if they were with their friends, um, in person, uh, out in the world, face-to-face, doing things, building things, learning together in a, in a way that's applicable in day-to-day life in the real world, that would be more creative than the connections that they're making, you know, over the video game, I think, as, as one kind of simple example of that. Yeah, totally. yeah and another example is that I think it was in China, um, there are these uh, Internet cafes where people sit there at the computer for days on end and some people have actually died like they've had heart failure just from not sleeping not eating 
and just playing games for like days on end. And I, uh, well, I read a, an article on thought about um, these boot camps in China that uh, people send their teenagers to in order to cure them of their video game addiction. So it's really a very widespread thing. Um, I think it just shows, uh, like we said earlier, about the fracturing of society, the fracturing of family, and the social social isolation that children go through and adults go through. And the video games or whatever their addiction is, it's just kind of giving them this false sense of connection, but it's not really a true connection. Yeah. It's the thing about video games, too, and I think this goes into um, the, the different food addictions and stuff that exist as well, is you really, like, you have to understand that these, these things are actually designed to make people addicted to them. You know, it's, I, I read one article, and unfortunately I don't have it in front of me at the, at the moment, but it was talking about how these video game designers, like, they, they know what they're doing. They know how to press the right buttons or make you press the right buttons in order to kind of keep you hooked, to keep you playing, to keep you wanting to kind of, you know, they always have, there's always another level that you can reach. So it's like, yeah, I want to reach that level and I have to go and do these tasks to be able to, even though they're incredibly repetitive tasks, um, you know, it's basically just sitting there pushing the button and pushing the button and pushing the button in order to uh, achieve kind of the next um, uh, achievement or the next level or whatever it might be. Um, I'm thinking specifically of like World of Warcraft and all the other kind of uh, video games that are, are based on the same type of idea. So, I mean, these video game designers, have they know these things. They know what will keep people kind of hooked to it. And obviously there are certain people out there who are much more susceptible to these things than than other people are and will kind of forego things like food and water and and sleep in order to kind of just keep on pressing that button and keep on um, you know, getting getting that next level of achievement, and you know, it's the same thing with the um, with uh, people who design processed foods and stuff. They know they do all kinds of experiments to see what is kind of. One article on Salt was actually talking about the junk food bliss point, and it's kind of like yeah. they're always kind of searching for this one, you know, this flavor combination or this, um, you know, there's chemicals that cause excitation in the brain, so. There's these things that these food designers are looking for that will keep you eating this thing, keep you wanting more of it so that you keep on buying more and more of their product and they make more and more money off of it. So, I mean, you know, there's sometimes an argument out there that, you know, these these things are just kind of fulfilling what society wants. And, you know, the the person who designs it can't really be um, held accountable for it because, you know, they're just fulfilling a need. But they are fully... um, aware of the fact that they are causing an addiction and that is what they're after. So it, it really, you need to put it into perspective in that way for sure. Yeah, and speaking yeah, exactly. of junk foods, um, I think in that same article, Junk Food Triggers Our Bliss Point, um, the author was saying that if he goes to his park and tries to get some ex- exercise on the way there, he'll pass more than 30 fast food outlets or junk food outlets to get to that park. So there's mm-hmm. a combination of availability, advertising, and seductive taste that all coalesce together to make people hooked. But I, I think we mentioned it earlier, but it just doesn't fit with our evolution. Like our brains have not evolved that much in the past 10,000 years or so, but we are faced with so much more stimulation and harder hits whether it be like the the super junk foods or pornography or video games, 
we just weren't evolved to get that high amount of stimulation on a day-to-day basis, and our brains are having a real hard time coping with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, our brains are designed to to uh, respond to these things, you know, in in a more natural setting. So you know, you're craving for sex in a natural setting, you know, it makes sense. You know, you want you you want to propagate the species, so you always kind of have that craving. But if you think about internet porn, you know, you, uh, in one session, if somebody sits down for an hour in front of their computer to look at porn, they're exposed to uh, you know as many partners as uh, you know our primal ancestors would have over multiple lifetimes. So it's like it's suddenly suddenly these these pathways that kind of made sense in this uh in, in this evolutionary uh sense they don't make sense in our modern society where suddenly you do have access to all these different things so it's kind of like exploiting these these natural pathways yeah for sure and i think it's you know it's also damaging our expectations um you know not just uh porn addiction but also talking about addiction to any other kind of uh, reward seeking behavior um, when you uh, uh, you uh, shoot now I'm losing the word uh, when you mm-hmm. take part in a in a behavior like that um, and you get this dopamine hit in your brain and then you come to a normal interaction with other people on kind of a day to day basis um, then it's it's boring in comparison you know and so it's mm-hmm. it's actually harming our relationships with other people. Yeah, and then they do a study with rats where they divided rats into groups, and there was a group of rats that had just the normal rat chow, and then another group that had rat chow, but for one hour a day they were given free access to uh, really highly palatable junk foods, and then there was another group where they were just given free 24-hour access to super palatable junk foods, and after a couple of weeks, I think, uh, the the 24-hour access rats, they just had no interest whatsoever in normal rat chow. They would just lay there and not even seek out food. So they didn't even want normal food after this uh, lab experiment. And I think that kind of happens in real life, too, because I've noticed it, too, because um, I could say that I probably had a food addiction at one point in my life before first Mm -hmm. getting off the gluten and the dairy. It's just that you're so used to this mega high that you get from eating chips and dips or cookies and mm-hmm. cakes and all that stuff. Just normal, like, meat and vegetables just doesn't get it for you. It has to be something that's super cheesy, super weedy, mm-hmm. and you want that at every single meal. You're not satisfied with eggs and bacon at all. Mm-hmm. But I'm happy to say that after many years, it's like a weight has been lifted off of me and like eggs and bacon are some of the best things that I can eat right now. And the thought of <laughs> the thought of eating a cookie or lasagna or all the, the super heavy Italian foods that I used to like it just makes me feel disgusted. Mm-hmm. I can definitely well, speak to that too. Um, I have a, a clear memory of water being boring. And how how awful is that, you know? But I remember it because I used to drink a ton of soda, like a ridiculous amount of soda. And, um, yeah, when I would have a glass of water, it was like, oh, this sucks. There's no flavor. There's no carbonation. (laughs) It's it's not sweet, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So denying the very basic tenet of life that my body needs um, because it didn't offer the uh, the hit, you know, that I was addicted to. Yeah. Well, kind of going a bit on what Tiffany talked about, uh, what we can only call the rat race, right? Um, in in that article we spoke of early addiction rooted more in social isolation than chemical dependency. The author talks about um, a pro- professor of psychology in Vancouver called Bruce Alexander that did an odd experiment with rats. Um, he put them in a cage and they called it, he built what was called Rat Park. And basically it was a large lush cage where the rats could have colored balls and the best rats in tunnels to scamper down and plenty of friends, everything a rat um, about town could want. And then he, you know, they put um, drugs in the water bottle and uh, the the rats with good lives didn't like the drugged water. And what they found was that... Um, you know, again, this idea of social isolation, when there was more rats in the rat park, they weren't concerned with the drug water because they had each other, you know what I mean? But um, when they were alone, they tended to consume more of the drug water. So, you know, again, I just like that theory of the rat race. And, you know, sometimes you feel like you're just, just on this wheel constantly going, 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 and, and you're socially isolated. So you tend to go towards those things that uh, give you this sense of soothing, you know. So I, I just wanted to add that little tidbit. Rat, It's called the Rat Park Experiment, if anyone's interested. Yeah. In fact, the uh, the isolated rats would keep on drinking the drugged water until they died. They would they'd forego food and anything with, just to keep on going back to that, uh, that drug. Um, whereas, yeah, like you said, the Rat Park ones, they, they weren't really that interested in it and they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't go to it very much. Doug, I wonder if you could uh, speak a little bit, uh, since you, you had mentioned um, internet porn, and I um, think that you had checked out this uh, documentary we were talking about a little bit before the show uh, that's called mm-hmm. Your Brain on Porn. Uh, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to that and some of the dynamics um, that are involved in that kind of addiction, because I think that's a a really big thing now. I mean, there there was a documentary that just came out recently as well that was I think at the Sundance Film Festival called Hot Girls Wanted that was about mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. epidemic of, of internet porn and it's um, it's more uh, it has the the internet porn sites have more hits out of any and all of the websites put together that are that are on the internet any you know news entertainment anything else porn is the number one thing and I think this is a an epidemic that really not many people are talking about yeah, definitely. Um, it's a, a YouTube video um, called Your Brain on Porn, like you mentioned. And unfortunately, I don't have the uh, the author's name. Um, I believe that it is uh, Marnia Robinson's uh, husband, and she's the one who wrote the, the book uh, Cupid's Poison Arrow. Um, and they, they kind of uh, run a website together that's kind of uh, sex addiction and uh, porn addiction um, recovery for people. Um, a really, really interesting series of videos. I highly recommend it for anybody um, who has the opportunity to watch it. Um, the good thing about it is that he kind of he goes into the mechanism of addiction and what's actually going on in your brain, and that applies to to any kind of addiction. It's not just porn. You know, he talks about food addiction. Um, he talks about drug addiction. 
you know, you could apply it to gambling addiction or anything like that. So he, he basically is talking about the, the, the kind of chemical pathways. So the, the uh, neurotransmitter called dopamine is basically there. It likes, it, it gets spiked. And when it's spiked, you, you kind of feel uh, pleasure. So, um, and what, what uh, causes dopamine spikes is novelty. Um, and it spikes even more if there's kind of an emotional connection to it too. And it doesn't matter if it's a negative emotion or a positive emotion. So by going for these kinds of ultra stimulatory activities, um, so looking at porn or looking at, uh, or, you know, going for, um, you know, chemical infested foods or gambling or whatever it might be, you get this rise in dopamine. Um, and you, you actually will crave that, that dopamine hit. Um, so actually, when you're having all these cravings and stuff like that, it's actually interesting that you're not really craving the behavior itself. What you're actually craving is that dopamine hit. So the thing about this, uh, this dopamine hit is that the same stimulus over time causes less of a dopamine hit because, like I said, it, it, you crave novelty. So this is why you see escalating uh, behaviors in this way. And this is, this is actually one sign of addiction is that the behavior actually escalates in some way. So porn users start you know, using it more and more. And the same old stuff uh, fails to give them that same dopamine hit. So they escalate to kind of more hardcore porn or more kind of deviant stuff. You know, like I said, the, the emotional connection to it, whether it's a positive or negative emotion, um, kind of increases that hit. So if you get into more and more taboo stuff, you get more and more of a hit. Um, so even if you're, you kind of feel ashamed or guilty for kind of looking at this stuff, that, that is actually... Um, making these pathways more well-worn and, uh, and, and kind of getting you further into the spiral of things. So it's the same thing with the, um, with the junk food, you know, whereas you look at the, the sizes of soft drinks over the course of the years and how much they've expanded. I mean, that's kind of mirroring society's addiction to these things, you know, whereas a little six-ounce soft drink back in the day was, was enough. People are getting more and more addicted, and now it's insane. Like, the, you see the size of these, like, jumbo um, soft drink slushy things that you can get. It's like it's it's an unbelievable amount, um, and it's just going to show that there's this this escalation involved. So um, you know when when you are kind of stuck in this pathway, um, your higher reasoning is kind of numbed a little bit. So you kind of aren't really having perspective on it. The addiction kind of has complete control over you, and you know you've got this kind of what he calls the go for it signal, and you're constantly kind of being pushed into uh, going back for more of this behavior and your higher reasoning, which might be like, yeah, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea, gets numbed and silenced in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I think, I think the way to kind of get yourself out of this spiral is to try and engage those higher reasoning um, pathways and kind of, you know, think more about what you're trying, like resist these urges, um, you know, maybe do some things like meditation, something that would kind of um, emphasize this sort of higher reasoning instead. Yeah, yeah, the thing you said that was interesting is about the uh, the dopamine hit that people are really seeking is not necessarily the drug or the porn or the video games or anything. But after a while, you get flooded with so much dopamine, your brain does, the, the number of receptors you have start to decrease. So mm -hmm. that kind of leads to the withdrawal symptoms of when you stop this addictive behavior, you just feel awful and it just drives you to keep wanting to go for it 
Um, and the thing you said about the, the addiction pathways, how they get kind of well-worn like a path going through a forest. And if you keep going down that same path, the more worn it gets and your your brain takes a path of least resistance. So if you ever feel the need that you're stressed out and you need to soothe yourself, your brain is going to take the easiest route versus the one where your your cognition kind of tells you to put on the brakes. But the only way you can really get out of that is kind of go down a different path, kind of do what it doesn't like, and maybe you can kind of pull the weeds off of that uh, the pathway that tells you to do the right thing versus seeking out a hit. Yeah. And more on that, actually, it was, it was really interesting when you were saying um, that, you know, these, there's these kind of natural, um, you know, cravings that the brain has. And we were talking a little bit about this before, you know, the craving for sex, the craving for food, um, those things are kind of like hardwired in us. And when we kind of exploit these with our modern um, access to them that, that, you know, just blows out of the water anything that you would actually be um, exposed to in a more natural setting. Um, you know, it, those, you can recover from those a lot quicker um, than you, or sorry, I'm, I'm saying it backwards. You, I, those, those ones are actually much more difficult to recover from than ones that are artificial like drugs. So the example he used is there's, there's certain drug addicts, um, when they kick their drug, um, the the pathway, the the kind of dopamine um, go for it pathway um, recovers a lot more quickly than things like porn addiction and food addiction, because those things are kind of like hardwired into us. Like we always want to uh, pursue sex, we always want to pursue food. Like those are things that um, you know are fundamental to our existence on this planet. So by exploiting those pathways specifically, it's actually a lot um, more difficult to recover from that than it is from um, like an illicit drug or, or a pharmaceutical drug even. Well, speaking of yeah, drugs, there's, there's some, some, uh, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, uh, no, I was just going to speak to the, uh, <clears throat> the idea of choice and that that's something mm-hmm. else that, uh, Gabor Mate talks about that um, a lot of people who don't have experience with or um, an understanding of addiction say, well, why can't you just stop doing this? You know, like basically what's wrong with you? And mm-hmm. he points out that um, choice is taking, uh, taken out of the picture, and that's why uh, a community is necessary. That's why the social connection is necessary for people to overcome addiction because if you take an addict – and put them into a, a situation where their addictive substance or behavior is readily available and they have no other regulating factor, choice is taken out of the picture. And um, <laughs> that's a, a really hard thing, I think, too, for addicts themselves to come to terms with, to admit, um, you know, I, I have my own personal issues with some of the tenants of AA, but they have, uh, I think, a really good uh, founding idea which is you are powerless, uh, which is true. You know, when you when you put an addict in a situation with their target thing, um, they become powerless. And so it, it, I was just meant to emphasize the idea of community and social connection as being really um, essential uh, for overcoming these kind of issues. Yeah, I think Gabor yeah, Mate sure. said in a lot of his patients, they say that it feels like they're on autopilot when they're seeking out a hit, they they are not themselves. Their their brains and 
their need for a hit just completely takes over. They have really no ability to put on the brakes. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are some drug manufacturers, of course, that they want to come up with some anti-addiction pills by (laughs) blocking the pleasure centers in the brain. But the bad thing is when you block those centers completely, it leads to profound depression and suicidal behavior. So drugs are not the answer to cure addiction because it kind of moves you in the opposite direction. You want to feel good, but the drugs make you feel even worse. Um, I think we've seen that with Chantix, uh, the the anti-smoking drug, and there's a lot of reports of people like being super depressed and actually committing suicide being on that medication. Mm. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, just kind of furthering what, what Jonathan was saying. Um, you know, when, when it comes to maybe a drug addiction, you know, removing somebody from the environment can be helpful. You know, um, getting away from the drugs, cutting off your, your um, old social connections that had to do with the drug, um, they, you know, that, that makes sense. But if you're addicted to something like fast food or porn, there, there is no removing yourself from the environment. I mean, that is our environment. We are surrounded by this stuff uh, 24-7. Any computer with an Internet uh, connection has access to, to uh, illicit porn. Um, you know, the, the one guy was saying in the article to go and exercise in the park, he's passing 30 different fast food joints. Like, you cannot remove yourself from the environment. It, it, that, that, that's not a possibility. So I think the, the social connection thing and working from that direction is, is really the key. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, throughout the show, we've been mentioning this guy, Gabor Mate, and uh, I, I'm thinking that most of our listeners are probably aware of who he is. He's become kind of a rising figure in the field of addiction and addiction treatment. But um, Erica, you had some some stuff, uh, some of the, Dr. Mate's material. Do you mind just kind of giving us an introduction to who he is in case anybody doesn't know, and then talking a little bit about... Um, some of his protocols and what he talks about? Yeah. So um, as Tiffany had mentioned, Gabor Mate is a, a doctor who had worked in the Lower East Side of Vancouver. Before that, he was a palliative care doctor. So um, he took care of people that were dying and then went to change his approach to working in the Lower East Side of Vancouver in um, basically housing projects for drug addicts. And he makes a point in his book of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, to explain that he was a doctor on site, not tasked with the idea of getting people clean and sober. His job essentially was caretaking um, addicts' wounds, and you know, a lot of the the addicts had things like uh, hepatitis or. Uh, HIV, and so basically he was just on staff to take care of the wounds and, you know, um, general checkups, and that's when he started to get into the dialogue with these addicts about what they were experiencing because they felt free to share honestly what their addiction was about because they knew they weren't going to get some sort of lecture about how they should be clean and sober, and the book is a lot of stories about these particular patients he had experience with and you know we shared some of their um, 
ideas of what the drug did for them, whether it was a cozy comfort or it helped them feel more connected to the world. Um, what I wanted to share was something that I found really helpful having dealt with addicts in my own life and, you know, trying to really incorporate what he talks about in his book about being loving and compassionate instead of chastising and, you know, ridiculing. Um, he talks extensively about how an addict already feels really bad about themselves and their choices, and they know all these things. If anything, they're their own worst enemy. What um, he found really helped was this idea of compassion and understanding. And so for me, I had um, in my own life, my child was addicted to drugs, and I didn't understand because I didn't have those same sort of addictions. And, you know, we started off with the grounding and the isolating and realized that that didn't really work. So when I read this book several years ago, it really helped me come to a different place to be supportive, you know, I mean, to show love and kindness, and it's really a challenge to be understanding in that type of situation when you're responsible for someone and they're endangering their life and there's nothing that you can do about it. And even in that um, TED Talk video, he talks a lot about that, about uh, how, you know, having this compassion and letting the addict talk and explain where these things are coming from and having that dialogue is really helpful. So I just wanted to share... Um, in chapter 33 of this book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, they have, um, it's basically called the four steps plus one. And um, these four steps, this four-step method was developed by a Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA. And it was originally used for the treatment of OCD or oppositional, or no, oppositional compulsive disorders. I drew a blank there for a minute. Um, in the book, Gabor Mate talks about how they might not just be used for OCD um, or addiction, but any compulsive, repetitive, and self-depreciating or self-harming thought pattern. And um, he basically says that these four steps should be practiced daily at least once, or also whenever an addictive impulse or self-undermining belief pulls you so strongly that you are tempted to act it out. So as Doug was mentioning, the porn thing or the junk food, um, basically if you're just mentally stuck in such a pattern. So he says, find a place to sit and write, preferably a quiet place, however even a bus stop will do, and... Um, wherever uh, an addictive urge arises. You want to keep a journal of this process, so carrying a small notebook with you is also an excellent aid. And I'm just going to kind of quickly go through the steps because I found it helpful with just even OCD patterns. You know, uh, being a wife and a homekeeper, you know, I, I tend to be OCD about cleanliness and sweeping the floor, washing the dishes, you know, so when you start to notice that it's ruling your life, um, these these four steps really help. So basically, the first step is to relabel. So in step one, you label the additive or self-depreciating thought or urge exactly for what it is and not to mistake it for reality. And he goes on to say when we re relabel, 
we give up the language of need. I say to myself, I don't need to purchase anything now or to eat anything now. I'm only having an obsessive thought that I have such a need. It's not real, um, objective need, but a false belief. I may have a feeling or urgency, but there's actually nothing urgent going on, or it's not true that I'm a weak person, or it's not true that I can never succeed, it's just a belief, or it's not true I'm responsible for everything, it's only an idea in my mind, or it's not true that I'm unworthy, etc. And essential to the first step, as to all the steps, is conscious awareness. It is a conscious intention and attention, not just rote repetition that will result in beneficial changes to brain patterns, thoughts, and behaviors. Be fully aware of the sense of urgency that, in, that attends the impulse and keep labeling it as a manifestation of addiction rather than any reality that you act upon. In relabeling Schwartz writes, you bring the play, you bring into play the impartial spectator, a concept that Adam Smith used as a central feature of his book, The Theory of Moral Sediments. He defined the impartial spectator as the capacity to stand outside yourself and watch yourself in action, which is essentially the same mental action as the ancient Buddhist concept of mindful awareness. The point of relabeling is not to make the addictive urge or compulsive thought disappear. It's not going to, at least not for, the, for a long time, since it is wired into the brain. It is to strengthen every time a person gives into it and also every time one tries forcibly to suppress it. The point is to observe it with conscious attention without assigning the habitual meaning to it. It is no longer a need, only a dysfunctional thought. And then the second one is to re-attribute. In re-attribute, you learn to place the blame squarely on your brain. This is my brain sending me a false message. This step is designed to assign the relabeled compulsion to act or think in a certain way to its proper source. Reattribution is directly linked with compassionate curiosity towards the self. Instead of blaming yourself for having addictive thoughts and desires, you calmly ask why these desires have ex exercised such a powerful hold over you. Because they are deeply ingrained in my brain and because they are easily triggered whenever I am stressed or fatigued or unhappy. The third step is to refocus. In the refocus step, you buy yourself time. Although the compulsion to open the bag of cookies or turn on the TV or drive to the store or the casino is powerful, its shelf life is not permanent. Being a mind phantom, it will pass and you have to give it time to pass. The key principle here, Dr. Shorts points out, is this. It's not how you feel, it's what you do that counts. And then rather than engaging in the addictive activity or indulge in the negative self-talk, find something else to do. Your initial goal is modest. Buy yourself just 15 minutes. Choose something that you enjoy and that will keep you active, preferably something healthy and creative. But anything that will please you without causing greater harm. Instead of giving into the siren call of the addiction or sinking into the familiar despair of negative self-belief, go for a walk. 
if you need to drive to the casino or turn on the TV, if you need to watch television, put on some music. If you need to buy music, get on your exercise bike, whatever gets you through the night or at least through the next 15 minutes. The purpose of refocus is to teach your brain that it doesn't have to obey the addictive call. It can't exercise, it can, excuse me, exercise the free won't. It can choose something else. And then the last step is to revalue. This step should be really called devalue. Its purpose is to help you drive into your own thick skull just what has been the real impact of the addictive urge or self-demeaning thought in your life. Disaster. The addicted mind has been fooled into making the object your of addiction the highest priority. Addiction has taken over your attachment reward and incentive motivation circuits where love and vitality should be addiction ruse. The distorted brain circuit shave you believe that experiences that can authentically only come from genuine intimacy or creativity or honest endeavor will be yours for the taking through addiction. In the revalue step, you devalue the false false gold. You assign it to its proper worth, worth than nothing. And then finally, what this, has this addiction urge done for me, you ask? It has caused me to spend money needlessly or heedlessly or to stuff myself when I wasn't hungry or be absent from the ones that I love to take on tasks that have stressed me or to expand my energies on activities I later regretted. It has wasted my time. It has led me to lie and cheat and pretend, first to myself and then everyone close to me. It has left me feeling ashamed and isolated. It's promised joy and delivered bitterness. The real value of my addictive compulsion has been that it has caused me to betray my true values. And then he just says, be conscious as you write this out and do write it out several times a day if necessary. Be specific. What has been the value of the urge in your relationship with your wife, your husband, your partner, your best friend, your children, your boss, your employees, your coworkers. Pay close attention to what you feel when you recall these events and when you foresee what's ahead of you, what's ahead if you persist in permitting the compulsion to overpower you. Be aware that awareness will be your guardian. So I wrote this out uh, several times for myself. And, and, you know, just those four steps. And again, I'll just mention them. It's relabel and then reattribute, refocus, and then revalue. And so, um, you know, I found that this has been really helpful, whether, again, you have a, a obsessional compulsion of cleaning or, you know, getting on your computer and getting on Facebook or whatever that compulsion is to buy yourself 15 minutes you know there's a, been a lot of research done about what they call harm reduction you know whether uh, previous addicts get into running marathons or practicing yoga or meditation or tai chi you know finding something that you can divert that attention to and focus on painting or uh, doing yard work, anything that kind of gets you out of that destructive pattern or cycle to those addictive thoughts. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, all of his um, uh, points are kind of in, uh, about engaging that kind of higher reasoning, higher thinking. Um, you know, analyzing what you're doing and, and you know, maybe getting into the, the some of the reasons why and stuff. It's like we were talking about before, you know, you can look at it just from the biochemical perspective that you, you don't engage that same well-worn uh, dopamine pathway. You have to engage that higher reasoning, you know, um, overcome that limbic impulse and, and use those kind of higher reasoning um, faculties to kind of uh, get better perspective and maybe uh, divert to, to some other activity. That's interesting, the part that you were talking about, if you could kind of step outside of yourself as an objective observer. Because one time, uh, this was years ago, back during my junk food addiction, I was sitting at my computer. I had already eaten dinner. I wasn't hungry or anything, but there was this 24-hour diner right across the street. Talk mm. about overexposure to junk food. But I was <laughs> sitting there, and there, I could hear this voice in my head that you should go over there. and get, I don't even know what it was I was wanting at the time. You should go over there and get something. You really need it. It would be so nice for you right now. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. And I kind of like stepped outside myself and just observed these thoughts, and they came in cycles. And I swear it wasn't more than three minutes later he said the exact same thing to me. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in a thought loop. I got a demon in me, <laughs> a food demon. <laughs> and so I didn't go out there and get I think I just went to bed or something. But it's so strange how your brain works and you feel so out of control. And uh, like Gabor Mate's patients, like you're on autopilot and you just cannot stop yourself. Um, so the thing that eventually helped for me is just eventually changing the diet. And like I said before, it was like a burden was lifted because you spend so much time just in these negative thought loops, like not just when you engage in a certain behavior, but the guilt and the shame and the mm -hmm. the you're constantly just focusing on it, like you're laying in bed at night, like why can't I do better? Why am I so weak? Why don't I have any willpower? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really tough. Yeah. And that brings in the whole being compassionate with yourself and being compassionate with other people because it's really like your brain is just hijacked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, that makes show how it's not, about, it's not about being hungry. You know what I mean? That this mm -hmm. craving isn't about, um, you know, you need nourishment or something like that. It's that you're craving that dopamine hit. Like you said, you're just yeah. eating dinner. So obviously, mm -hmm. like you weren't hungry. Um, so it's 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 pretty amazing. Like you know, one one thing that I've found from changing the diet to a paleo ketogenic diet is is how much all those little, you know, how how much I was eating uh, more for entertainment or more yeah. for out of boredom or something like that. You know, these things like gluten and casein and uh, you know the processed ingredients, MSG, all the other chemicals and stuff, they give that that dopamine hit. And by taking yourself off of those kinds of things, it's amazing how food is no longer entertainment. You know, I, I've mentioned it before on the show, but, you know, I, I, I stopped watching the food channel, the, the food TV, um, just food because porn. it wasn't entertaining. Yeah, food porn. Exactly. You know, it's, it, it's all tied to that kind of addiction thing, that whole, like, you know, you're craving that quote unquote comfort food, which is really just giving your brain a chemical hit. You know, it's, it's like you, you, by getting yourself, by switching your diet, 
you know, you, you kind of take away those, those pathways that have been so, in, so ingrained. And those things just aren't interesting anymore. Like, I can't tell you the last time I actually craved some kind of, you know, a junk food snack or something like that. People eating chocolate cake in front of me, which used to be my ultimate weakness. I'm just kind of like, meh, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we've um, talked about it before in the show, you know, um, when you tell people about the diet and how can you do that? How can you not eat that bread? And, you know, just mm-hmm. like you said, Doug, you know, going to a party and there's all these foods, it's like it's like in AA, you know, you don't walk into a bar if you have an alcohol issue, but, you know, it yeah. can be the same thing can be applied to food, you know. You go to a party and there's all these foods there. I mean, now it's like the that that desire, that need is not even there. It's like you have to work through the initial, you know, withdrawal symptoms and 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 all the kind of attended feelings that come with that. But after a certain point, you can walk into a, a buffet and, yeah, there's nothing I'll be eating here today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I remember one time I actually witnessed somebody um, having – she was having a meltdown, like an absolute meltdown because she needed some cheese. And I was, kinda, I was really blown away by this. It was crazy. We were at a, um, a, trade, a nutrition trade show, and she was having kind of a stressful time, and, and she was kind of like, I need cheese. I absolutely must get cheese right now. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? That's insane. That sounds like me. <laughs> I swear my stomach used to be a bottomless pit, buffets and everything. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I never thought it would come to the day where I could, like, go to a party or a gathering and I could just not eat anything and be perfectly happy <laughs> or yeah. eat before I go. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. I think some of this speaks to the idea that there there is actually a light, you know, at the end of the tunnel uh, for people who are addicted. And, um, Erica, when you were talking about those points from, from Gabor Mate, it reminded me of something else that he had said too about not identifying uh, with the identity of being an addict. So instead of saying I am an addict, saying I am in a state of being addicted right now, or I'm in a state of addiction um, so that you don't, you know, root your identity uh, in this addiction or in the addictive behavior. Um, Yeah. He talked about, he talked about, yeah, that, um, do these steps without judging yourself. You know, you're just gathering information. You're not conducting a criminal trial against yourself. <laughs> yeah. But it can certainly feel that way. Like he says, you know, that the, the addict is uh, their own worst enemy in, in that. And I can speak to this too from personal experience that feeling that guilt and shame and like, yeah, I already know that this sucks. I already know I don't have any willpower. You don't have to tell me that, you know, you don't have to tell me what, what a bad situation this is. I get it. But, you know, the butt coming into play where like that willpower is already knocked down, the grooves are already made in in your brain, uh, in your uh, behavioral patterns. Um, so uh, it really takes a, a big effort of separation from that identity to actually um, pull out of that. Um, we actually have a quick uh, question in our chat here that we can address. Um, and it's Zoya. Zoya is in our chat, and she said, what about certain temporary addictions or behavioral traits that are actually a sort of adaptation to a dysfunctional environment, like things that are not ideal but keep a person sane? 
Um, hmm. uh, I guess what, what just to speak to that. I, I'm not sure. Um, she just, you know, uh, she just says certain temporary addictions are behavioral traits that are actually a sort of adaptation to a dysfunctional environment. Um, I guess just well, speculating I on, speak on just, I could speak on just a personal thing again, coming back to the OCD tendency to be, have my environment obsessively clean to the point where it drives everyone in my family a little bit crazy. Um, we were having a discussion about when you feel like your life is out of control, that needing to control something. And so I really noticed that in this tendency for cleanliness to an extreme level, that when I feel like my life is in chaos or I don't have control, and I really experienced this again when we were going through these challenges with my daughter that I would clean as a way to make my environment a more controlled place, if that makes sense. That was kind of my coping mechanism for how to deal with how out of control I felt that my life was in these emotional aspects, the, the physical act of sweeping or vacuuming or, or cleaning out the refrigerator, all these things kind of helped me feel like I could at least control my environment and maybe if my environment was in a more better state that my emotional state would follow, if that makes sense. That's just a, a personal analogy. Yeah, I think, there's maybe, <clears throat> uh, I think there's maybe a subtle difference between, you know, an addiction and then, uh, you know, ad adapting to an environment. Um, it may result in an addiction, uh, you know, the, the adaptive uh, behavior, um, but I'm not sure that you could necessarily um, uh, slight someone for doing a an, an adaptive behavior that is negative if they don't necessarily uh, know better, I guess. I'm not sure how to put that. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to yeah, say something we... similar there. Um, I think that you need – I think that the problem might be the, the idea of a temporary addiction. Um, I think the, the kind of the definition of addiction is that it's not temporary. You know, it's that it's a behavior that's compulsive and it escalates in some way. So I think maybe, you know, she was talking about, you know, um, an adaptation to a dysfunctional environment, like something temporary, like maybe a behavior to kind of escape in some way. I, I don't know that it's the same thing because I don't, I don't think that if, if you're in a, kind of a, a, a temporary situation, you could really necessarily call that an addiction. Yeah, as long as you're aware that you are doing this to cope with the environment that you're in, and once you remove yourself from that environment, those behaviors go away. I don't think that would qualify mm -hmm. as an addiction per se. Mm -hmm. right. Well, we've uh, we've gone over quite a bit of uh, material today, and I hope that uh, anybody who's listening who might be struggling with a any kind of addiction, uh, whether it be drugs, food, porn, you know, purchasing, whatever, um, any really any kind of behavior uh, can turn into an addictive behavior, and, and pretty much any substance can also be an addictive substance. So it's a, uh, it's a really uh, kind of a rampant uh, issue in our society, and it has many, many different manifestations. So I hope that people are able to take away from this discussion some different ways to um to deal with that and again we'd like to encourage everybody to um to really look up uh gabor mate uh he's i know we talked about him a lot but he's got a lot of really good material 
Um, the book In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts uh, is very good. Um, and then also the, uh, the documentary Your Brain on Porn, uh, which is available on YouTube, uh, is also very good for anybody who might be struggling with that. Um, so we're going to uh, take a little break right now and actually go to Zoya for the pet health segment. Um, and then when we come back, um, kind of talking about uh, food addiction, uh, we're going to talk <laughs> about pork rinds. Which might be a new addiction now, <laughs> but um, we we talk a lot here on the show about the low carb diet and pork rinds are a really effective way to make a lot of different kinds of food uh, while keeping your carb count really low. Um, so instead of just kind of giving a one off recipe, we're just going to talk about pork rinds a little bit. And uh, Tiff and uh, her roommates have a lot of experience uh, using pork rinds. Uh, in a household that has a lot of people there. Um, so we will go over that when we come back. So here's Zoya, and she's going to talk about um, some misconceptions related to pets. We'll be back after this. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today, I'm going to share with you uh, interesting and less-known facts about various animals which refute some of the misconceptions about them. Sheep, for example. Everyone thinks that they are not particularly bright. There is even a description for some people, like sheeple, that uh, characterizes those who follow uh, follow others without thinking. But, as it turns out, experts consider sheep... Um, only as perhaps a bit less bright than pigs, rodents, and monkeys. Among farm animals, they are somewhere in the middle on an intellectual level. They have a good adaptability and perhaps even uh, some ability to plan ahead. They are not the Einsteins of the farm animal world, that's for sure, but not as stupid as they are being painted to be either. Another creature worth uh, mentioning is a goldfish. Apparently, their survival abilities are something of a legend. In one case, the fish survived 13 hours after jumping out of its aquarium. In another, the golden fish lived after lying on a cold stone floor for 7 hours. A miracle? Hardly. Uh, the simple explanation is that uh, when outside of water, golden fish has an ability to enter a state similar to hibernation and reverses into a normal state when put back into water. Next, seriously outrageous misconception is that pigs are also stupid. After all, how an animal that loves uh, rolling in the mud can be smart? Well, they can and they are. For example, piglets can learn to recognize their nickname if they are given one when they are only a couple of weeks old. Another example that demonstrates uh, that pigs possess strategic thinking. When a pig notices that another piggy goes to a food stash, they will follow and will try to, dis- uh, to take away the food. But then the second pig will realize that this is what's happening and will try to lead the first pig to a trap or to a false stash. Apparently, pigs also show that they are capable of cognitive thinking, meaning that they are able to understand what other animals are about to do. Early experiments showed that only dogs, ravens and chimpanzees were capable of doing it. Now, let's talk about male goats. 
you know there are many examples of uh, sympathetic pregnancy in nature or males uh, sharing a responsibility like seahorses uh, for one well male goats also do their share apparently no one knows exactly uh, how it happens but apparently male goats can grow and other and provide milk but what about other behavioral traits that are usually associated with human behavior mourning the dead for example surely animals understand it when their children die but some also perform uh, rituals red foxes for example bury their dead elephants guard the bodies even if the elephant wasn't their relative mockingbirds announce to others if they see that one of theirs uh, has died one could say that they do it uh, to announce that there is a danger around but the thing is that after such an announcement the mockingbirds fast for a day as if grieving the passing of the comrade and the last fact uh, will be about camels camels live in a desert and while it is very hot there during a day camels don't perspire they don't sweat so how do their bodies regulate in the temperature especially since sweating appears to be uh, the usual way to do it well in case of camels their bodies built in such a way that in a temperature can rise up to 48 degrees celsius and the body will completely ignore it and there won't be any detrimental effects it was probably an evolutionary adaptation uh, because sweating in desert conditions probably appeared uh, to ancient camels as something very wasteful thing to do well this is it for today hope you found the information interesting have a nice day and goodbye <laughs> There's some of those smart goats there. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. But so, I must say I hate I to go from a show on addiction to talking about addictive pork rind recipes, but nevertheless. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's something that we've been uh talking about doing for a little while, so I think it'd be good to uh to cover this for our listeners because I that's one thing when you when you start doing a low carb diet uh at first again I guess this relates back to our topic is that it can seem uh boring you know because you were mm-hmm. used to eating all these foods that provide a certain kind of hit and they're really like exciting to eat and then all of a sudden you're left with you know butter and steak and pork chops <laughs> you know which to a lot of people can seem pretty boring but there is a lot you can do and uh there's a plethora of pork rind recipes um that you can use to make low carb um pancakes um bread let's see I'm looking at the list here like hamburger buns pie crust um done mm. a pizza crust brownies um pumpkin pie filling cookies even <laughs> <laughs> so yeah to, i know yeah. You, you guys do that a lot the you possibilities are Yeah, the possibilities are seemingly endless and I have to uh credit another site editor, Karen. She came up with this just maybe it was out of desperation, <laughs> maybe it was out of creativity. <laughs> But uh yeah, we made all those things and they're all delicious uh like the uh the bread, for example. 
it's kind of made like, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever eaten cornbread, but it has mm-hmm. that same kind of sponginess and the little air bubbles in it that you can uh, that you get with cornbread. And I always hated cornbread, but this pork rind bread is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So there's recipes. I don't think we want to get into the exact recipes, but um, yeah, you just grind the pork rinds down. Uh, a lot of people have noticed, like, if they try and make pork rinds themselves, uh, the pork rinds aren't, like, uh, super, super fluffy like they should be when you want to, like, make recipes with pork rinds. So if you're going to buy pork rinds, you just want to make sure that the only ingredients are pork and salt. And uh, since pork rinds do have salt in them, you want to reduce the amount of salt that you put in your recipe. But you want to grind it up as fine as you can grind it using a food processor and then go from there. Um, it's really fantastic. And, uh, yeah, we've made bread. We've made non bread, like the flat little Indian bread for mm-hmm. uh, Indian curry dishes, and that was really excellent, too. Uh, we made pancakes. Um, sometimes she'll add a little arrowroot powder into the, the batter, and it makes a really good pancake. You can just put some, you know, sugar-free jam on there or something. It's really good. Uh, brownies were a big hit. All you do is just put your your cocoa powder into the the, the pork rind dough, and put some xylitol on there, and you've got your you've got your brownie. It tastes really really fantastic. Um, we do put a lot of uh, bacon fat in there, and uh, it can be a little greasy, but <laughs> it mm-hmm. still tastes fantastic. And speaking of high crust, uh, our other site editor, Shane, he made a lemon curd chocolate pie, and it had pork mm-hmm. rind, chocolate pork rind pie crust, and it was mm-hmm. to die for. So just because you're going keto or paleo low-carb doesn't mean that you can't have an occasional treat. Um, the thing about the pork rinds is um, it's very, very filling. So it's not like you can just sit there and gorge yourself, like you used to be able to eat like a whole packet of cookies in one sitting. Mm-hmm. You're satisfied with just a little piece of bread or a little like brownie or a little piece of fat bomb cake which is another miracle. Um, yeah, but you can't gorge yourself because it's extremely, extremely filling. So that's a kind of a good thing, too, so you, you can't overeat the, you know, your pork rind desserts. But, yeah, we've made fat fat bomb cake, and it's really just um, the pork rind crust serving as a crust, and you can uh, do a little fat bomb layer and then put, like flavors in your fat bomb that you want your cake to be. And it's really turned out to be quite a hit. So we're all very, very, very happy with pork rinds. Um, maybe it'll turn into a cookbook one day. <laughs> Have you guys made like pork rind bread or tried anything? Um, I've, I've done a few of the things. Pork rind. Go ahead, Doug. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that we made pork rind uh, pizza at one point. And, um, yeah, like you were saying about the filling, uh, how filling it is, Tiff, it was it was crazy. You know, like we made this pizza, and I'm like, oh, great, and I grabbed myself two pieces. Um, and I ate one, and I was kind of like, oh, I, I think I'm done. Like, <laughs> it was not, not the kind of thing where you can gorge yourself on pizza or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things people say they miss the most is pizza. And, uh, mm. yeah, it takes – 
kind of a long time to make because you have to make your own sauce. Um, but you can still use pepperoni or strips of ham and put your onions or garlic or whatever else you want on the on the pizza, and it turns mm-hmm. out fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not really fluffy like a regular pizza, but uh, it's good. It's it's a worthy substitute. Mm-hmm. I actually like that a lot better than the the regular floppy pizza. I noticed that too. I've, I did the the pork rind pizza crust, and uh, aside from it just being really filling, it was like it was sturdy. And I don't know, there's something about like a sturdy pizza. Pizza, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've, I've done the uh, the bread um, and the hamburgers. Looking at the recipes here, a couple of things I haven't tried yet were the the pie crust or the um, the brownies. Um, mm. The brownies look really good, and there's even a recipe here for pork rind noodles, which sounds really interesting. Huh? Yeah, so you make pork uh, rind noodles. I forget the exact uh, dish that we were having because it's become such a thing around here. It's not like a week that goes by that we don't have some kind of pork rind something or other. But yeah, you mm. can make pork rind noodles too. It's fantastic. Wow. It, look, it looks like it's, it's really essentially pork rind. Yeah. The, just looking at the recipe for the noodles here, it looks like essentially uh, crepes that are then cut into strips. So like mm. we've been mm-hmm. Cool. I guess what, one of the questions that our listeners might have when we're talking about this, like, um, you know, do you have to have an access uh, to a pig, uh, to, you know, like pig skin from a butcher to make pork rinds. Do you guys, ha- have you made your own, uh, I guess would be my first question, like from pig skin or, and if you don't, if you buy them, um, what do you look for? Yeah, we just look for, uh, just plain pork rinds and salt, no extra flavorings or anything like that. Um, we haven't made our own pork rinds from pork skin yet. One of my roommates has made pork rinds before, but I think one of the issues with that is getting it as fluffy as the mm. store-bought pork rinds, and the fluffier yeah. the better when you come to when it comes time to make the uh, pork rind batter. Yeah, we've done quite sure. a few experiments with pork rinds here, and uh, yeah, they weren't kind of turning out at first. Um, you would end up with like a lot of really hard pieces that weren't really chewable. But one of the revelations was it, of it was um, uh, that we you, you apparently, uh, one of my roommates went down to Mexico and saw how they did it, and they actually boil the pig skin first, then dry it out in the oven. Actually, down there, they dry it out in the sun. But uh, we, we did those steps here. Actually, I shouldn't say we. It was all my roommate. Um, but he uh, boiled the, the pig skin first, then dried it out in the oven at a very low temperature overnight, and those pork, pork rinds turned out perfect. They were absolutely, like, super fluffy and, like, you know, we get the, mm-hmm. the pork rinds from U.S. Wellness Meats every once in a while, and these were better, like like quite a bit better. We didn't grind them up into flour because mm-hmm. we ate them all, but um, no, they were they were they turned out really well. Yeah, another thing you need to yeah. keep in mind besides it being really filling is that when you're making the pork rind batter and you add eggs into it, it can really like make it super super thick. So you want to have some water on hand to kind of thin it out a little bit, so you can work with it a little better, and it's not just a, a pasty ball. Mm. Sure. Yeah, but you want to flavor it. I mean, put herbs, 
Like if you want more mm. of a, a savory type bread or you can put like the cocoa and xylitol if you're looking for like a dessert type of thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to try the uh, the homemade pork rinds. And that's something I haven't uh, delved into yet, so I'll have to see if I can get some, some pig skin and try that out. Well, awesome. Okay. Well, we... Uh, We'd encourage all of our listeners to uh, to try that out. I know we didn't give a specific recipe today, but there's a lot of recipes for pork rinds that are available on the SOT uh, forum. Um, if you go to SOT.net and then just click the forum link, uh, you can find the recipes there. Um, there's also a lot of recipes uh, just online, just around too. If you um, just do a Google search for you know pork rind bread, pork rind pancakes, things like that, and see what you can find. And then, uh, you know, tailor the recipe to fit your needs and just kind of play around with it. But um, that was definitely a revelation for me when I first learned about this, and it's, it's been fun to play with. <laughs> so, well, that's our that's our show for today. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for participating in the chats and uh, um, for listening. And we'd encourage you guys to check out the other two shows that are going to be on the SOT Radio Network uh, tomorrow and Sunday, the Truth Perspective tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern and uh, Behind the Headlines on Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. They've got some really good topics uh, coming up. Yeah, actually, actually will... there won't be a Truth Perspective show tomorrow. Uh, okay. Hosts are otherwise engaged, but they'll be back next Saturday. Okay. Cool. So that leaves them behind the headlines on Sunday and then the full complement yep. next weekend. Um, so uh, be sure to check those out, and uh, we will see all of you guys uh, next Friday. So thanks very much for, for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye, Bye. everybody. Bye.